Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to have you tuned into this show. I'm joined by Don Cook. He is a songwriter who has written songs recorded by everyone from Brooks and Dunn, John Connolly, Conway Twitty, George Strait, Keith Whitley, Billy Gilman, T. Graham Brown, Steve Warner. He also transitioned into another role in the 90s, picking up the hat of record producer. He's produced the likes of Brooks and Dunn, Billy Gilman, Tracy Lawrence, Joe Diffie, Olivia Newton-John, and others. Don Cook was also formerly in the business side of music publishing and was chief creative officer at Sony ATV Tree. So it's a great honor to welcome hit maker and songwriter Don Cook. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. So you hail from Texas, is that true? That's correct. I grew up in a tiny little town uh, about 120 miles south of San Antonio called Carrizo Springs, Texas, which I'm really proud. And I still have a lot of friends there and uh, some family there, but. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm from way down in South Texas. <laughs> Can you give us a snapshot of kind of what things were like for you when you were growing up down there in Texas? Well, we were so far off the beaten path. I don't think I saw an out-of-state license plate till I was about 17 years old. Wow. You know, and I I listened <laughs> I listened to my, my music influences were were real varied because my dad liked big band music and my mother liked country music. And I listened to everything. I just soaked everything up. And uh, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, there were a lot of Mexican radio stations that played a lot of different kinds of, of Cajunto, uh, uh, all sorts of Mexican pop music. So I, I enjoyed all that stuff too. I just really, I really got a, a tremendous variety of, of entertainment and loved all of it. So I, you know, I was introduced to music. Really. I played in the school band starting in the sixth grade. And I, that's when I really, really got into music. I was really serious about playing trumpet until uh, a girl told me that I look silly playing trumpet. So I sold my trumpet and bought a guitar in about three days. And, uh, <laughs> I've been playing guitar ever since. <laughs> Interesting. But I, uh, I, uh, uh, I have since tried to find the, that young woman that told me that so I could send her some roses and thank her for talking me out of playing the trumpet because uh, I've certainly, I would have certainly had an incredibly different life if I'd stuck with that. Well, that's the truth. <laughs> So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned here conjunto music, the stuff you were hearing from the Mexican radio stations, your father's big band music that he liked. When you started kind of identifying your own musical tastes, who were the singers, who were the bands that you really resonated with? You know, I'm I'm really gravitated towards acoustic music. I really liked folk music. Uh, that's really where I kind of, 
other than trumpet and you know my my first music idol was Miles Davis and but but as far as is what I might do myself I really became interested in acoustic folk music and I loved I loved Peter Paul and Mary but my absolute hero and still is my absolute hero is Bob Dylan and I uh, I, I just loved growing up with that music and I'm still enjoying it, but you know that, and I, you know, R and B music in the '60s resonated with me a lot. I, I love the Beatles, and I love the Rolling Stones. I love all the Motown and Atlantic stuff. So I, you know, I just I didn't listen to a lot of country music other than what my mother was listening to until I decided to move to Nashville. You have good taste. I'm curious. <laughs> Did you listen to the brand new, the 39th Bob Dylan album that came out this year? I haven't yet. I'm kind of savoring that. I'm kind of saving that for a for a special time. I, I, I'm I'm going to listen to it when we go on a some kind of long weekend or something here as soon as we can tr- safely travel because I really want to get away and get into it because I know I'm going to love it. I've heard... You know, I've heard so much wonderful stuff about it. I can't wait to get into it. But I haven't, I didn't dip my toe into it because I really want to get into it and listen to the the whole thing. It'll be something to look forward to, something to savor. So, how did you learn to write songs? You know, I don't, I don't know that I really learned. I think I just started doing it and, and I just, honed the the craft from the time I was 14 and, and on. And I, I never really, you know, I, I, it's just something that I, I did compulsively and still do. And, and uh, I just, you know, as, as I met and networked with new people and, and, and found new influences and heard new music, I just, you know, I went down those little side roads and, and picked up as much stuff as I can. But I just, you know, I'm still learning, and I'm still, I'm still amazed at how great some of my contemporary songwriters are, and some of the newer songwriters that are younger than me. I just, you know, I just marvel at the talents of of uh, a lot of young songwriters. I mean, I think you know, people like Taylor Swift are just amazing. I. I wasn't nearly as good as Taylor Swift when I was her age. So I'm just, I'm just, I mean, I love studying and enjoying everybody's music. I I, I just, uh, you know, so I, I mean, I'm how I learned. I don't know. I just, I just did it until somebody took it seriously. And I guess I, I guess I, I, I felt like I was moving in the right direction when people started wanting to do my music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When you were just starting out, did you ever have any doubts? Was there any doubt whatsoever, or was it full-on confidence? You know, I, I don't know if it was confidence so much as I just didn't have a plan B. I just, uh, <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I just, I, I burned the bridge behind me, and just, and that was it. You know, and uh, and I, I really was incredibly fortunate that I came up as a songwriter, especially in Nashville, under the wings of some of the greatest songwriters that have ever 
written in this town. You know, guys like Harlan Howard and Curly Putman and Hank Cochran. I mean, those guys, those guys were my graduate school. Those guys were the, I mean, they were the people that were kind enough to let me hang around with them and write with them. And, uh, you know, I just, I learned so much from those guys. I'll, you know, uh, I'll never understand how much of a great effect they had on me. You mentioned a few names there. Harlan Howard, (laughs) Hank Cochran, Curly Putman. Would you say that there was a songwriter that you learned the most from? Probably Curly Putman. And I spent the most time with Curly. We we worked a lot together. And he was just, you know, he was such a role model for me. And not just as a songwriter, but as a human being. I mean, he was one of the, one of the most, uh, I, I don't know, he was the most, one of the most phenomenal, soulful people I've ever known in my life. And I just, I looked up to him and I just, I treasured our relationship so much. I think I really, I think uh, if there's anything good about my songwriting, a lot of it has to do with my association with him. He was relentlessly uh, hard on himself and, and, but just ropes completely from his heart. And I just, I love that and admired that so much that I, you know, I hope it, 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 it helped form the way I write. Can you recall those early Don Cook songs that when you first were starting to finish songs, do you have any memories of it, of those? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, when I first came to Nashville, I like a lot of people that come to Nashville to, to write, I, you know, I thought my, I thought my songs were really uh, revolutionary and <laughs> we're going to change the world. And, you know, they, they, like a lot of people do when they get to a songwriting community, I, me and my music kind of hit a wall and, and we all just slid down the wall. And then, uh, uh, you know, the, the wall was the reality of what the, what the music business was and what it wanted. And, you know, and, and I, I mean, I still have a fondness for those songs, but, but when I listen to a lot of them now, I feel, I feel like I was very, very naive about what I could do and what what I thought people would want. I mean, I think there was a point in about when I was about 26 years old when I when I really started writing songs that I was prouder of than than the ones before, and uh, that was a real turning point for me. And it, but it was really, really. Uh, and it was about that time that I started collaborating with people rather than just writing by myself. But the, you know, the, one of the last songs I wrote by myself was, was kind of a turning point for me. And I remember one of the songs was a song called the way I feel tonight, Bobby bear recorded that song. And it really, really boosted my confidence a whole lot. And, uh, and then at the same time I, I started meeting some of the great writers at Tree, like Bobby Braddock and Ray Van Hoy and uh, and Curly and Harlan, and I just threw myself completely into that culture and into that community, and wrote with and hung out with those people. And you know, I just think it was a miraculous time, and I, I feel so blessed 
to have been there and been around and with those people and worked with them, gotten to enjoy their talents. What are your memories of moving to Nashville? Well, when I'm when I moved to Nashville, I uh, I didn't take foreign languages seriously when I was in college, so I I ended up having to stay an extra summer and just take Spanish courses all summer at the University of Texas to fulfill my Spanish language or, or my foreign language requirement. And three days after I got through with classes, me, my first wife, and a friend of mine named Mark Stevens, who, who ended up being one of the most prominent acoustic session players uh, here in Nashville, we just loaded our stuff up in U-Hauls and moved up here. And, uh, you know, I just, in my early 20s, I decided I wanted to either live in New York, Los Angeles, or Nashville. And after having some experiences with both the others, I decided that Nashville was really the only place where I could I could really live. And so I, you know, I just, without any kind of connections at all, just loaded my stuff up and, my feeling was I was, I didn't have a job. I was broke in, in Austin. I might as well be broke in Nashville. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, <laughs> it was just, it was just, it was just put your, put your, your failure in a trailer and go somewhere else with it. So <laughs> I, I <laughs> put your, I, you know, <laughs> from the time I got here, uh, I, I just, I really felt like I, I'd done the right thing. I really, I, I just, I don't know. I've had so many wonderful experiences as a result of my making that move that, that I just, you know, I, I'll never regret the fact that I did that. And, and I think what, what it was, what happened was I fully committed to my dream. I didn't, you know, I didn't stay in Texas and, and, and get some kind of job and send songs to Nashville in hopes that somebody would take me seriously. I just took everything I had and came here and put it all on the line. And I think, I think just about all of the writers that I know that have had any success did it that way. I mean, they were determined to come here and it didn't matter whether anybody thought it was a good idea or not. They thought it was a good idea. So. It was, you know, it was a, it was a scary time, but it was, it was wonderful. You know, when you're 22 years old, you're, you know, everything seems possible. So those early days were really a lot of fun. You were mentioning the Bobby Bear recording of one of your songs. What was the first artist to cut a Don Cook song or a co-write? Uh, first first guy that cut one of my songs was a guy named Bobby Wright. And he was the son of Johnny Wright and Kitty Wells. And he was an actor and a recording artist. And he cut one of my songs. It was a minor chart record. I got a, I won an ASCAP award for it. It was in 1974. That was my first chart record. And I was in Russia at the time when the ASCAP awards happened, I was in Russia playing bass on the Opryland goes to Russia tour. So I didn't get to go to the awards, but that was my first, that was my first record that resulted in a, in a single. 
and uh, it it was it was exciting, but it was uh, it was not a it was not a big memorable record. And the the first number one song was a John Connolly cut, correct? Right, nineteen seventy eight, "Lady Lay Down," song I wrote with Ray Van Horn. Tell us a little bit about the experience and the emotion behind getting your first number one. Oh, it was it was just it was fantastic. It was it was produced by really good friend Bud Logan and. Uh, John was a, a up and coming, really exciting new talent. And Bud was a really good producer, and uh, it just—I uh, remember going to hear the the rough track, and I, it just sounded so great to me. I went over to Woodland Studios with uh, with Don Gant, the guy that was the creative director at Tree Publishing at the time. And heard the the rough and just thought, my God, if that's, I was so excited at the thought of that being a single. And when it was, it was really exciting. And I, I don't remember uh, a lot about the uh, about the early days of it on the charts, but I, I there's a really funny thing that happened when it got to the uh, to the toward the top of the charts. I was back in Texas visiting my family. And to say that my family was really interested and really invested in my career is an understatement because when the when the song was in the top ten, I was I was in Texas visiting and one of the song pluggers from pre-publishing called my parents' house to give me the chart numbers for the next week. And the only person that was at my house was my grandmother, who was about 80 years old at the time. And he he called, he got my grandmother. My grandmother said, uh, can I help you? And he said, yeah, this is so-and-so from Tree Publishing. I'm calling Don to give him his chart numbers for next week. And she said, well, you can give them to me. I'll, I'll give him the message. And he said, uh, well, you know, you might not understand it. I, you know, I, I can call back. And she said, no, no, really, give me the numbers. I'll I'll tell him. And he said, well, okay. Uh, he said, it's, uh, tell him the song went to, from, from five to three in Billboard. And my grandmother said, well, did the record keep its bullet? <laughs> you know, which is a, which is a very inside term for somebody that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it, of course, that just that, he just thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard in his life. And, but that's uh, you know that was a that's one of the 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 great memories I have of that record. And then it went on to number one. It was my first number one, and uh, and I realized real quickly that the minute you have a number one record, you start thinking about how you're going to have another number one record, and uh, it just. I was very underwhelmed at how how relatively unexcited I was once it happened, and you know, it, and I guess that's the proper motivation for a professional songwriter. I, I, the minute I had one, I wanted more, and I, you know, immediately started working to have more. So, uh, but that was a that was it, that was a, a wonderful experience to have the first one. <laughs> 
So the the proper emotion when you get a hit is next. (laughs) 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 That's really nice. Thank you very much. Now we can cut another one of my songs. (laughs) (laughs) Nonetheless, I'm sure you know, with the the list that I had at the beginning of the show, some of the greatest singers ever, George Strait, for example, has there been a recording that a a singer or a band did of of one of your songs that you were just on cloud nine, you were elated by it? I can't, you know, I can't say for sure, because there's so many really peak experiences. I'll tell you that the, the, the most fun I've ever had hearing one of my songs sung in my entire career was the day Ronnie Dunn and Kix Brooks and I finished writing the song Brand New Man. And we sat in my music room at my old house and we sang that song and sang the chorus in three-part harmony. And hearing Ronnie singing at that moment, when I think about it now, I still get chills. It was so exciting. It was, it was transformative for me. It was like 3,000 volts of electricity shot through my body when we sang that chorus and hearing Ronnie sing it. And we were so excited when we got through playing it for ourselves. We called Arista Records and got Tim Dubois on the phone and we said, we have a new song we want to play for you. And he said, come down. So we went down to Arista Records and we played it for Tim and he just went completely crazy. And he got the entire staff of the record company stuffed into one room and made us perform it again. And they all just started cheering. And it was like, it was like, you know, it was more fun at that level. That was more fun than hearing the record on the radio the first time. You know, that's... <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that, that's the drug of professional songwriting is having peak moments like that when you just, when stuff is just so exciting. And, you know, and, and those, those experiences are so few and far between, but, you know, that, that was really an amazing, amazing experience for me. I'm a big fan of all of those Brooks and Dunn. The, the early albums are so good. And, I've thought before that that album, Brand New Man, the first track, Brand New Man, it's like you put that that CD, you put that CD in the CD player. This was kind of when I was a young guy collecting music. It was like a whole new era was ushered in. For me, when that started playing, it was it's such a different sounding album. It, it kind of goes beyond what you think of when you think of country music. How did you become connected with Brooks and Dunn? Well, Kix Brooks and I were doing some writing together in in the late 80s. And uh, Kix had done an album project and hadn't had much success. And he asked me if I would help him get another record deal. And I said, absolutely. I you know, we were writing together anyway. I thought, well, certainly I will. He didn't, he didn't say, will you be my producer and help me with a new album? He just said, will you help me get a new record, another record deal? I said, he said, I want to try it one more time. And I said, sure. So I went to 
our publisher and got a small budget and we went in and cut five tracks. And uh, Paul Worley, who was uh, the chief creative officer at Tree Publishing, Sony ATV3 at the time, heard the session and liked it so much, he took it, started shopping it. He took it to Tim Dubois at Arista first and Tim heard it and, and said, uh, I want to sign Kix Brooks right now. And he said, I, I also have learned that the Judds are going to retire, so I want a duo for my label. So I want to find somebody to go to perform with kids. So we we talked about it, and, and, and you know, this, this all took place over a number of days, and we thought, well, it's something we can look at. So we, we talked to somebody about being in the group, and they, they had a other aspirations. They wanted to do a solo deal. So we let that go. So Tim had this other guy, Ronnie Dunn, who had submitted some material, but he just kind of had Ronnie in a holding pattern. So he said, why don't you try this guy with kicks? So he sent us some music and uh, we fell in love with the music and we got together with Ronnie to meet and write some songs. And we ended up writing, we wrote working on my next broken heart the first day we met and uh, we just kind of hit it off so we we hung out and wrote together for about a year before we did an album and then uh, that's kind of how we got together I, I was introduced to ronnie through tim dubois and in 1991 we made the you know we, we got enough songs together to do an album, but we didn't have brand new man until we'd already booked the the session for the for the sessions for the album, and we wrote that song on a leftover writing day before the session. So that ended up being our. We had sixteen songs picked, and that wasn't one of them. We just wrote that as the last song before the album. So <laughs> it just really it it was really an amazing process. And right when we started doing the first album the gulf war broke out and it was really a down kind of sad time and that uh, doing that album really was great for my spirit and I, I i hope i think it was great for the other guys too we just had we had so much fun doing that album uh, ronnie and kicks brought all these these Bullheads, these these horns into the studio. We decorated the studio like a, it looked like a canteen. It was great, and we did that record. It was just it, it was just kind of a magical time. It really was a lot of fun, and the musicians loved the the songs. They seemed to love the songs, and we just it was a great experience. It was just a really wonderful experience, and you know we didn't have any idea how successful it was going to be. We just we just thought it was really good music and uh, it was staggering when it started playing out just how how much people liked it i mean we didn't uh, we didn't uh, we just had no idea we in fact the record company when they heard boot scoot and boogie they didn't even want us to record it because they thought radio wouldn't play a shuffle like that hmm. and we just fought for it we said well we want that song on the record because we love it so much so they let us record it and that ended up being the biggest song on the record. But it was radio at that time was not into that kind of music. They had been resistant to George Strait doing those kind of songs. So I figured, well, if 
they won't let George do them. They're not going to let you guys do them. But we just plowed ahead, and it was, God, what a magical, wonderful experience that was. And I'm happy to say I'm still great friends with those guys to this day. You know? so and I think we probably all look back on, on that as a really phenomenal time. And and there's so many of the the songs from from those early Brooks and Dunn albums that they're just you can go into a, a restaurant or a bar and <laughs> I, I used to go I, I was a waiter for years and um, there was this this old he was an old black gentleman he was a bartender at this restaurant and he would always always be singing. He would turn up the speakers of the, the the house. He would always blare Neon Moon and sing along. And it was just <laughs> those, those were great records. I love that song. What a great song! <laughs> yeah, killer, absolutely. How would you say that you learned to produce? Well, I, you know, I, I I learned to produce because I I, I produced my own demo sessions. Yeah, I did my first demo session at a studio when I was 14 years old. I booked a studio in Houston and went to the studio and recorded my songs. And I just kept doing it. You know, I, I the demo process in Nashville is just exactly like cutting records. You know, you use a studio band. And except when you do demos, you, you work a lot faster. You don't have the luxury of being able to spend a lot of time like you do when you're cutting a record, but uh, you know, you learn to produce records in the de demo studio. All I did, well, I mean, the, the same guys that played on my demos ended up playing on the first Brooks and Dunn album. And then they all got real hot as session players as a result of the success of that album. The ones that weren't already hot. So it was great for all of us. There have been times where I've interviewed a songwriter and I got very curious about a certain song, and they would send me the demo. And this happened a few times where I actually thought that the demo sounded better than the final pr production that people would hear on the record. I think that's very often the case. <laughs> it's kind of kind of head-scratching. Well, the demo of Brand New Man is indistinguishable from the, the record. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, it was just... We just copied it. It was, it's really exactly the same. But Don Gant, my original publisher, who signed me when I was 22 years old, had a sign on his desk that said, It ain't as good as the demo. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he was right. I'm hoping you can actually tell us a little bit about Don Gant, who a lot of people might know. He made a big, big impact in a lot of artists' careers. Jimmy Buffett, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about Don Gant. I met him when I was 22 years old. A guy named Bobby Bond, who was a songwriter at AK Pros, took me to meet him. Bobby liked my songs. He said, you need to, you need to go meet Don Gant. And Don listened to my songs, liked, liked him, and signed me to AK Pros, and then left and went to ABC Records, where he ended up producing and after that time is when he worked with Buffett. Don was one of the most inspiring characters because he was a he was just a pure 
he, he loved music and songwriters so much. And he was so, he was such a natural motivator that he just, he just sort of drove you to do your best work and was very nurturing at the same time and really complimentary in a way that, that brought you along, but pushed you at the same time. He was a, just an incredibly marvelous character, just had a, had an unbounded enthusiasm. I mean, he'd, he'd call us. He used to call me at 8 o'clock in the morning and say, what are you doing? And I'd say, oh, I'm a, I'm a music guy. I'm asleep. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. I, I was up till 2 o'clock in the morning working on something. He said, well, it's, it's morning. Get your ass down here and let's write some songs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I'd get that call three days a week, you know. And the culture at Sony Tree, well, it was Tree back then, was it, it is a it is a it's the Dallas Cowboys of publishers, and you, you're on this team, and you're expected to pull your weight, and you're expected to write hit songs. We don't want anything less, and you stay down here and you work and you hammer on them, and I and when when they're good enough, I'll take them out and get them cut. That's the way he treated it. It really, it really pushed a lot of people, and and it. I mean, you know, part of being in that culture was, I think, it was like being in the army during the war. You know, there was a tremendous bonding between all of us that were down there. We worked together, and we we cheered for each other, and we we listened to each other's songs, we critiqued each other, but it was, you know, it was just an amazing group of writers that Don had put together down there. He, when he went to tree in 76, he called me at a cup Rosen and said, you want, you want to You're not doing anything over there. Why don't you come over to tree and write for me? So I, you know, that was a huge boost to my confidence for him to, to do that. He really, really took me under his wing and as well as a lot of other people too, that, that he took under his wing and, and, he just, uh, he was a force, you know, he was a force that only the, the guys and girls that were signed at, at Tree Publishing were exposed to, really, other than the people that he would just, you know, the, the producers that he would just pound about recording our songs. I mean, he was the greatest song plugger, <laughs> you know, and if, a, if an artist came into town, he'd gather up whoever was at the publishing company at the end of the day and We'd go over to their hotel and beat on their doors, make them listen to our song. We'd sit in their hotel rooms playing songs for them, you know, <laughs> which I'm sure in a lot of cases was not really what they wanted to do at five thirty in the afternoon. Uh, but it was just it was that culture, it was that kind of culture, very exciting, and you felt like if you you weren't there, you were going to miss out on something really, really big. And he created that. He created that culture, and it, and it. And I, you know, for a guy in my twenties and early thirties, it was incredibly motivating, stimulating. You know, we drank too much, and we, you know, we just we worked all the time, and we just, you know, it was just a, it was a it was a it was a very very exciting time. You know, with with Don Gant down there, I mean, artists that were in town: Merle Haggard, Conway Twitty, 
Waylon Jennings, all these people would show up down a tree in the middle of the night. There'd be people down there writing songs and playing songs. And, I mean, it was it was it was an incredible place, you know. It was it was just uh, it was unbelievably exciting. But that was Don Gant. That's that's the culture he created. We were talking on email, and I was telling you about a, an affinity that I have for a song that you co-wrote sung by a very, very, at the time, a very young guy, Billy Gilman. And I'm talking about your song, One Voice. Yeah. How did you come to encounter Billy Gilman, and how did that song come to be? Well, you know, Billy Gilman was discovered by Ray Benson <laughs> of Asleep at the Wheel. Mm-hmm. And Ray brought Billy to to Sony Records. And... uh Blake Chancy got David Malloy and I to work together. Blake and David and I worked on the first Billy Gilman project. David and I wrote One Voice. But it, for Ray Benson, of all people, to find Billy Gilman and bring him to the, <laughs> to the, to the game is just really, really interesting. I love Ray Benson. He's just a, there's a force of nature. But Billy Gilman was so different. I mean, he was just, he was, when I met him, I guess he was about 12 years old. And he was like, I mean, he had the, he had the social skills of a corporate CEO when he was 12 years old. I mean, it was just freaky to watch him work a room and, and, uh, and an amazing vocal instrument. God, we really, really, uh, had a lot of fun working with him. Is there a song from your catalog that you would say that you're the most proud of? Oh, man. That's that's a tough one. Because, you know, it would... I, I just can't pick one. It's like picking your children. I don't want to make my other children mad. <laughs> you know, I think one of my favorite songs is a song called I Wish I Could Hurt That Way Again. It's a song that Curly Putman and Ray Van Hoy and I wrote. And, uh, you know, Curly, like I said, is the most soulful writer I ever met in my life. And Rafe Van Hoy is, you know, know, when I met Rafe, he was, he was too young to sign his own contract. I mean, he had, his parents had to sign his contract so he could be a writer because he was, uh, he was only 17 years old and he, uh, I mean, that song is really, really special. Oh, yeah. That's a knockout. <laughs> I, I, like, I like that song a lot, too. I'm curious, did you see the new Bobby Braddock book with the descriptions on one page? Yeah. What was that like to yeah. see your song made? I that's loved like, it. <laughs> that's cool, isn't it? I, I loved it. I love that book. I love the concept. Absolutely. And Bobby is a- Absolutely, unbelievably, Bobby is an absolute genius. I mean, he is—he is one of the most brilliant minds I've ever been around in my life. Are you finding this year, twenty twenty, to be a fruitful year in terms of writing songs? You know, I'm not—I'm not doing a whole lot right now because it, it, it's the. Uh, the, the 
virtual shutdown of everything is mm-hmm. really, I don't know, it's really, it's really slowed things down for me creatively. I, I really, I feel really guilty because I haven't done as much as I wanted to do this year, but I'm just kind of giving myself a break because times are so strange right now. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Has there been any silver lining, I mean, in addition to being able to take a break to this time? Well, I think the, uh, I think being around the house and not, and not having to feel guilty about it has been really beautiful because it's, I've read a lot of stuff and I've, I've seen a lot of uh, movies and I've just gotten into some stuff and listened to some, some different kinds of music that I, that I probably wouldn't have slowed down enough to, to do without this time. So, you know, you know, it has been, a, it has been really good. I think there, I think the the negative thing about it is everybody's so fearful about, about the coronavirus and, and me amongst them. I mean, I'm just, you know, it's terrifying. We have people listening from all over. And this is a very open-ended question. I always like to give the guest the stage at the end. You've got people, in some cases, from other countries, young people, older people. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Well, you know, I mean, as far as is what I do and what I what I've done in my work. You know, I I think. Uh, I think if you if you if you have some burning desire to do something, you you need to to, to do like I was talking about earlier about my mood. You need to either go all in or just or just resign yourself to the fact that you're going to have a nice pastime or a nice hobby. And uh, if you're stuck in a time like we're stuck in right now, where the uh, where the the, the the, the forces uh, around you are keeping you kind of hunkered down like we are, you know, I would, I, I, I it, when I think of myself at 25 being in the same position, it would have caused me a tremendous amount of, of stress. And I would probably have figured out a way to channel that stress into some kind of creative process and I, you know and that's what we all need to do in this in this time i mean we need to we need to figure out a way to make the the negative energy of what's going on right now come out in some kind of positive way you know i, I think you know for some people it's for some people it's being able to spend more time with your family be able to spend more time with people that you love be able to do some stuff with them that that nobody took the time to do for people that are creative people, it, I mean, if you ever had a time to, to to work on a big book project or music project, or if you wanted to write your Broadway show, or I mean, this, this is the kind of time where you could do stuff like that with with time to spare. And I, you know, I'm 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 sorry that I used my time so far, but you know, I spent 45 years being really, really self-motivated and, and, and worked a lot. So uh, I'm kind of enjoying 
not pushing myself to do that right now. But I'm, but it, for somebody that's 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 in the early stages of a career, or or, or a, especially a writing career, uh, and what a what a great time this is to hunker down and just go for it. Well, Don Cook, it's been a great pleasure to interview you. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Finally, I <laughs> I decided to to do whatever I could, and I'm I'm really glad that we had a chance to speak. Well, I I, I enjoyed it a whole lot, Paul. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, sir. Well, thank you again. Have a wonderful evening. Until next time. Thanks. Thanks. You too, Paul. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band. Written by Irving Berlin. Performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G-Things. Improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.